0: Welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast. The podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but we'll also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at ThermoFisher.com. So I am extremely honoured to welcome Provost Linda Doyle, the 45th Provost and first female Provost of Trinity College Dublin to the podcast today. So as a professor of engineering and the arts at Trinity, Linda has had a wide range of expertise in the fields of wireless communications, cognitive radio and spectrum management, but she's also extremely passionate about marrying creative arts with engineering. She is the founding director of the SFI Research Centre Connect, judge at the BT Young Scientist Exhibition, to name but a few. And so Linda As I said to you, I am uh, incredibly grateful to you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule uh, to meet with me today. And in person, it's so nice. Um, So you're very welcome to Unraveling Science.
1: Thanks, Megan. I'm actually delighted to be here. And as you say, in person is such a treat. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. And also to have the studio so close to Trinity, we're we're very lucky.
1: I know. It's brilliant. (laughs) Just across the road.
0: So I suppose I want to kind of go back to... You know, maybe growing up in Cork, what that was like um, and what your interests were, maybe when you were in primary school and was it to
1: aspire to engineering? So um, absolutely not. I actually literally did not know what engineering was. And um, to be honest, uh, while I kind of knew I was interested in sciencey things and I always kind of like maths and things like that um i certainly wasn't sitting there thinking i want to get involved in technology and certainly all even through secondary school and it was actually only when i went to an open day um i went to ucc originally i was at an open day and somebody stood up and, and described electrical engineering and i thought oh that's interesting i think i I'll, I'll, I'll do that it was literally that god yeah so you you even tried secondary school you still yep. didn't and i mean you're obviously way way younger than me and i think you know, the school I went to, I loved it, but it didn't kind of force on you to start thinking about what you wanted to be. And it kind of for me, it happened very naturally that I was able to just, you know, um go and see what things are like. That's why I think open days can be very powerful. You get a kind of a flavor of things. And as I said, I knew at a science event, uh, but um, I, I, it was only when I heard it um that I said, you know, uh, I'm going to do that.
0: Yeah. And perhaps maybe being like a girl and a female maybe yeah. engineering probably wasn't was more of a boys thing at the time.
1: You see you're absolutely right that it is but I didn't know that yeah. and I think one of the things I was saying this recently uh, to somebody my parents didn't have any prejudice one way or the other they both left school early for uh, various reasons So, that, but they didn't have a kind of fixed notion of you had to do something or you didn't have to do something and that actually was very liberating so I didn't think oh I, I, I didn't know the statistics it didn't occur to me and obviously when I turned up in the class I realised that that was the case but you know and it's still the case today but um, but I was able to I suppose think about it outside that framework and that was that that to me was powerful that it didn't kind of come into being that framework of whether men or women did this and you know how many people would be in it I just thought that looks interesting I I, I would like to give that a go
0: yeah which is obviously what you should be doing when you're thinking of a career and not thinking about you know kind of external societal factors Mm. so you obviously got into electrical engineering and was it very heavily male <laughs> it,
1: it, it was actually and um, I think when I did it uh, I won't say the exact date when I did it back in the day there were actually 10% of women in my class which at that stage was considered a very big number and it, it didn't really hugely shift from that since but engineering is uh, uh, uh in one sense it's a, a weird and wonderful place you know people are very focused on kind of the solutions, the outcomes and, and to be honest, how you get there and who helps you get there, male or female, a lot of the time didn't matter at that stage, even though I know there can be other kind of barriers in society at large, you know, you kind of it's, it's focused on the thing at hand, the science, the engineering at hand, you know.
0: And did you specifically want to do electrical engineering or did that come a little later on?
1: No, so so in the particular course I did, unlike here in Trinity, where you have two years to kind of think about what flavor of uh, engineering you like, you picked it from the beginning. It was just the way that was. And it was clear to me, for example, that's the kind of thing that I was mo- more interested in. So you in uh, back then you picked, uh, it was electrical and electronic engineering, or you picked civil engineering in, in that particular case. Okay. Um, uh, And I kind of knew from the beginning that that's, that's the kind of thing I wanted to do. So you
0: then moved on and did a master's and PhD yeah. in Trinity. Yeah. So talk right. to me about that move yeah. up to Dublin, up to the big smoke.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so when when I graduated first and um, so I was always kind of middle of my class. And when I graduated first, I kind of to my, said to myself, I really would love to stay in academia. But uh, for whatever reason, I thought, oh, I'm not good enough to do that. You know, you have to be top of the class to mm-hmm. stay. And uh, so I went and worked in industry. So I worked in industry for a year in Germany. And I remember I, I always say this. I have an absolute terrible memory, like memory span like a goldfish sometimes. But I absolutely remember the first day in industry and I was in my office. It was a big kind of open plan office. And I remember kind of staring across the office instantly knowing I was in the wrong place and not because the job wasn't interesting or because the people weren't great. Or, and it was at the time it was fantastic to be in a different country. Um, it was long before the time of Ryanair. So being in a country where you got to other con- other countries at the weekend was all really exciting. But I kind of had this huge yearning and I think it was more... I think it's not that I fully understood what research was, but I had the huge earning to just be in an academic environment. And I couldn't just leave then uh, because I'd signed a contract and, you you know, you'd owe the company money back and, you would mm-hmm. ha- you know. So I, I stayed there for a year, but I immediately started looking and a, a friend of mine actually put me in contact uh, with a guy called Sean Swords, who's dead now, but he was my master supervisor in Trinity and he was a wonderful man and very, very welcoming. And uh, that's how I kind of started on my path in Trinity.
0: I think that idea of, you know, starting off an industry and then, Mm. you know, so any experience, I think what I'm trying to say is any experience does stand to you because I suppose from industry you took that this was not the place for you. Um, And I think that comes up a lot, especially for people of me, like my kind of early career researcher stages people maybe not be not be fully sure should they move to industry. But I yeah. think any move will tell you one way or the other. I think it will.
1: And I mean, I think there are amazing and fantastic jobs in industry, uh, you know, in, in the civil service, in all sorts of places. So I'm not by any means saying that. that, that uh, And, you know, I think today as well, and you, you, you hit on a really kind of, uh, I suppose, difficult topic. It, it's complicated and difficult and the number of academic jobs that are available are, are you know, are limited. So I think, First of all, you're absolutely right that, you know, experience is experience and you can get all sorts of different experience but I think secondly I do think people have to be kind of open minded to what options there are you know and I think one of the great things about doing a PhD in postdoc is you have whether you realize it or not you have plenty of transferable skills you have plenty of problem solving approaches to problem solving you have plenty of kind of systematic thinking you have plenty of creative thinking that you can bring to other other places you know so I think yeah. but you are right when you go to those other places there's things to learn that you can then bring back if you if you end up going back.
0: So I suppose maybe talk to me then about that problem solving and, and what how was the PhD? Was it did you enjoy it? Because I know it can be yeah. tough. Yeah. Know?
1: So this is a this is a very this is a terrible answer to give. A, so I, I, I did. Uh, so it was kind of radio wave propagation was the uh, the area that I did my PhD in. And I would have to say no. Right. And so I knew I, I'm kind of a, I've started, so I'll finish. I think a PhD can be a very lonely pursuit um, uh, and to a certain extent it has to be because it's your work and you and your thoughts and your ideas. And in my particular case, I kind of didn't work in a, a lab with other people or I didn't. There wasn't kind of a even though there was some lovely people around, there wasn't kind of a cohort, but uh, as time went on. I could see myself that pure technology was not enough for me. So so, yeah, I was interested and I remained interested in things to do with radio waves and wireless communications and propagation. And that is a huge part of my research life. And I learned an awful lot, but there was something missing for me. So when I got to the end of the Ph.D., I knew that afterwards I would have to add other things. And I suppose that's a good thing, too. You know, you get an in-depth knowledge in something, you know where you stand and then you can kind of add other things in, you know, so.
0: And how did, like, why did you choose that topic specifically for your PhD or how did that come Yeah. Out?
1: So I suppose I kind of went the telecoms route. So when as an undergraduate, I like the telecommunication space for people who don't know when I, you know, I have my mobile phone here like that's a radio. We describe that as a radio. So when you say radio wave, you know, mm. propagations, everything to do with anything that emits and receives. Waves, so I always liked that. That and then when I worked in industry, I worked in Siemens in Germany, and I worked in telecommunications, kind of type. And then I came back, and it was kind of always in that area of wireless, you know, um, communications that I tended to work. So it kind of there was a natural progression, and that kind of tends to happen. You know, sometimes you probably find it here as well with, um, you know, people do a, a final year project in a particular topic, which kind of sets them on a route, and then they kind of, you know, continue that. And um, so so it was kind of like that. There was kind of a natural progression, and the communications world for me is fascinating and you know it changes so rapidly. Even since back when I, I mean when I did a master's, I designed antennas for you know, uh, mobile phones that you only used in cars. You probably <laughs> don't even know that 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 you know. So people had their 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 mobile phone was attached to a car, and the way you got a, a strong enough signal is you had the antenna on top of the car. You know, so so it's a rapidly changing world, and there's always new and exciting things. And I think that's the thing about engineering. You're always kind of pushing and looking at the at the next space. So I kind of I went on that journey and kind of stayed on it. If you know what I mean. Yeah. From, yeah.
0: Well, I suppose before we kind of get into you know that that research, I'm I'm just curious as well about the the period. I suppose post PhD mm-hmm. to I suppose developing your own group and your own lab. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about so that. So
1: that's so it was a very different time, right? So I actually did start lecturing while I was finishing my PhD, and I very luckily then got a job post PhD. So I didn't do that postdoc phase. Right. Um, but again, as I said, it was it was a different time and different things were happening and. So I went straight into that. So there was good and bad in that. So there was fantastic that you actually were able to have a job in academia and that I loved. And I absolutely loved teaching. And it was so exciting. Uh, my I mean I went from not teaching anything to teaching class of one hundred and fifty engineers. That was my first <laughs> teaching. Wow. <laughs> I remember going in for the first time, and you know, especially when you're kind of nearer in age, people looking at you thinking. Should you be here or something? Yeah, because yeah. you're probably like similar age. Yeah, to exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um but uh, so I love that. But where it was complicated was I didn't I I, I didn't kind of have my centre of gravity research wise. And um you know, I, I was kind of to a certain extent known as a good teacher rather than known as a researcher. And, you know, um, and therefore then I kind of needed to build that research profile. And I was very, very lucky then where I, I worked with fantastic people. Like there's a colleague of mine in, in computer science called and uh, computer science and statistics called Donald Omani, and he was a huge influence. And I joined I actually joined his group. I just asked him, can I join your group? And I am the mm-hmm. kind of person who does who likes the kind of creativity that comes with working with different people. People and ideas sparking each other, and you know, did a lot of stuff with him and began to kind of make my own. My own um, identity as well in, in in research.
0: Yeah, and that's actually an important point, and something I ask people on this podcast all the time. I suppose the the value and importance of mentors. Yeah. Uh, along the way, and I presume this would have been, he would have been a very important mentor yeah. um to you at, at such
1: an early stage. Yeah, I mean academia academia is a complicated path to navigate, and I think uh I think you always need a partner in crime, as I <laughs> call it, and uh, I think um you know. We were together, able to do things that you know. There's a lot of balls that a lot of should I say, a lot of plates that you have to spin. And I think basically, if you if you're kind of working in you know with other people, you can kind of do much more, you know. And and I felt that with him, and you know he had fantastic ideas. Um, and then there was other things I'd come up with, and and I, I mean together, I think we were able to do a lot of things.
0: I suppose this is probably a nice point in our conversation then to bring in some of the things that you yeah. did do. Um, So talk to me, I suppose, about the whole area and field of telecommunications and wireless communications. Yeah. And, you
1: know, you mentioned it
0: earlier that you're fascinated by it. Yeah. And, you know, why, I suppose?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I suppose the thing about it is it's very varied. And basically, I mean, I think if, 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 if... Well, it's a funny world, right? So if you look back over the last two years of COVID, I mean, the whole world... Depended on networks to work, you know, and, you know, I suppose that underlying technology is uh, an amazing underlying technology. And, and and I think from that perspective, I was always really, really interested in it, And, you know, how that connectivity that you, you get through, whether it's fixed or wireless systems and how you enable many, many other things to happen for me was always a, a really important thing. But it took me a long while to. So if you had asked me a good number of years ago what I was interested in. I would, I would have struggled I'd have given you all these technical terms right and I'd said I'm interested in kind of the various different generations you know like 5G, 6G or whatever it is now I would have talked about various different technologies um, I would have talked about cognitive and software radio but really what it boils down to what I was interested in is why certain people own things and why other people can't own them instead and an awful lot of the research I was interested in is how do you do things in new ways so a wider and different range of 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 people or entities have access to resources um and that uh, I, you know, it took me a long while to realize that that was my, what my research was about. So even if you're, I was talking about radio waves. You need you need access to radio waves to communicate. You know, if you're a mobile communication network, you need access to it. There's certain laws and regulations, uh, and there's certain technologies that you use to to do that. And I was always interested in, a, you know, how could you how could you allow more people access to those airwaves as such, and what new technologies could you do to use that, and what new laws and regulations should come in to be able to enable a different way of kind of offering services so i know that sounds very abstract but that ultimately is what it was all about
0: yeah because i watched i think it was a, a tedx talk from i think maybe 2012 yeah yeah
1: um i was watching that
0: last night and you were speaking about the kind of um scarcity or or, yeah. or, or managing these resources into scarcity yeah. and how you want to manage them, them out, out of scarcity
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I, I was also just very interested in the fact that i well i was so unaware of this that it,
1: if a service provider, or maybe I'm
0: going to get this wrong, yeah. but if a service provider owns a certain range of radio waves, there's yeah. some parts of it that are unused.
1: Yeah, so I mean, in 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 the early days of the work I was doing, it was very much, uh, so, so that that's true, right? So when you communicate, um, uh, there's different bands that at different frequencies and, and different com- is, kinds of communication happens in different frequency bands. And you're right, they're not used all the time. And a lot of the work we did in an early uh, stage was about how do you understand what's used and not you used and can use clever techniques to hop in and use them when other people aren't. And, you know, an example, this is a, this is a kind of a dull way of describing it would be like as if you had a parking spot, right? And uh, you went away during the day and didn't use it and someone could come in and use your parking spot. And then when they noticed you were coming home, they kind of pop out of it and into another one. So it's this kind of very dynamic use of resources, okay. you know, and therefore you need less of them if you use them cleverly because uh, they will go around more. You know, so that's that's the kind of analysis you could do. So a lot of the things so there's there's different kinds of technology you need to be able to do that clever technology to be able to detect is it empty or full, you know, to detect when somebody's coming back or not mm. and then to configure yourself to fit into the gap that's available, you know, so so um, so that's kind of where I was coming from. And a lot of the rules and regulations that we would have doesn't allow that. So a lot of the work I've been doing uh, over the years is. Not alone, how do you create the technology, but how do you create the rules and regulations that would allow that much more what we call it, uh, you know, dynamic spectrum management, dynamic, but it's dynamic uses of resources. Okay.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I read something else where you were saying that we not only want to communicate with each other, like you were talking about the phone and the car back in the day, we also now want to communicate with objects.
1: Yeah. So and it's huge. Yeah. I mean, that probably increases the demand for the absolutely. You're absolutely right. And, and and every 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 object. So, uh, I mean, people your listeners now might be well familiar with the, the phrase Internet of Things, which is a phrase that's been used for many years now. But it's it's where everything and object is connected to the Internet and it may communicate and might be communicating a, a door might be communicating whether it's opened or closed or, a, you know, a, a thermometer communicating the temperature of the room or, you know, everyone's you know, most people now have access to some kind of smart meters and smart homes, but you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, it's all a bit like there's multiple things communicating. I suppose, One of the things that was always challenging in the world that that I came from research wise is that people really only notice what you're studying when when things go wrong. So a lot of what I was interested in was very invisible, like radio waves, like networks. And basically, most people just take it for granted or your mobile phone and they they then pay attention when they can't make a phone call or the network is down, you know, or, or something is broken. So so a lot of what we focused on is like, how do you make the invisible visible to people and they actually have an opinion about what should happen? With yes, it, you yeah. know, and who should own it, and who has the the choices of who gets to use what. So,
0: um, talking about suppose, the Internet of Things, you also f- were spearheaded this pervasive na- nation. Yeah. Am I getting mm-hmm. that right? You are right. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: pervasive nation. T- talk to me about that project. So maybe just to say a couple of things. So Ireland is a small country, but it's a fantastic size country for you to kind of do experimental test beds in. Um, and sometimes if you ha- do an experiment, it makes sense to do it in the lab. But oftentimes you can only go so far. So we were really interested in taking the experiments outside of the lab and kind of build things kind of in real life around the place, if you want to put it like that. So um, Pervasive Nation was a network we built around Ireland in different locations so that people could do experiments with Internet of Things type stuff. And if you if you think of it like this, um, your phone sends big, fat signals because, you, have, you're, you know, you're dealing with video and you're, you know, you're, you're maybe playing games and the Internet of Things world. We were particularly interested in at that time. It's all about kind of really smaller uh, signals and how you have kind of, you know, huge numbers of devices, mending small amounts of data. So basically that network, I worked with some great people in Connect, the center that I uh, I was involved with. They they basically they 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 were kind of instrumental in kind of setting up David McDonald and others were instrumental in setting up this network. And, you know, we spent a lot of time kind of trying to encourage industry as well as other uh, academics to kind of work and, and, and test out ideas on it. And you get a sense, you know, it's, it's sometimes it can be very hard to simulate or emulate things in the lab. So when you're actually able to go out into the real world and test things out, you get a different perspective on things.
0: And was was one of the I suppose, aims of that was to kind of provide um, internet or, or accessibility to maybe rural
1: or remote um, areas? No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't one of the aims of it. And I, I'm amazed at all. You've looked at it and read. You're, you're fantastic. But <laughs> you're, um, But uh. Basically, we were interested in how you would do that in remote areas as well as urban areas. So we had some of the like, if you want to call it the the nodes of the network, we had some in very remote areas because sometimes you would. So, for example, there's a huge interest, we will say, in terms of the environment and climate where you would kind of be able to monitor things that were like happening in bogs or monitor things. And in, 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 so we had various different projects about like monitoring trees and all sorts of stuff. And those kind of you'd have a node there in a kind of very rural environment because the application area would kind of lend to it. And then we do other things right in Dublin City Centre where you were doing kind of more urban things. Okay. So, so it was kind of it was important to have that mix as well where you, you know, because I suppose part of what you're doing there is you are pushing the technology. So I'd say, can I design really good technology that does this in a robust way? But you're also pushing the application space and saying, you know, why would people be using this? And what kind of applications can they come up with? And there would be a range in, in, in urban locations and then arranged in, in rural locations.
0: I suppose thinking about, you know, mixing two things there, so so rural and urban, mm. another kind of thing that you're very passionate mm. about, I know, was the mixing and the marrying of creative yeah. arts and engineering, yeah. which I, I don't know why, but I was kind of like, this is, it, I just thought it was so unique. And I know you were professor of engineering yeah. and arts, which is, I think, in I was kind of shocked by that title yeah. in a way, because I'm like, how did they merge yeah. together? Um, and I also read that you said, you know, it, it shouldn't just be nice that this is happening, it should
1: be It's it's important. It should be happening. I think one of the great, fantastic things about Trinity is, you know, when you are working there is you have the freedom, the intellectual freedom to go in all sorts of different directions. I think that is the top most exciting brilliant thing and privilege about an academic job is that intellectual freedom to go oh my god this is interesting Uh, I'm going to follow that path and I had said to you earlier even though uh, you know I was delighted to do a PhD for me I knew by the end of it that that was kind of too narrow a focus and I wanted to spread out so I initially spread out more into the kind of kind of we'll say the policy and the economics that also sat around kind of all of the stuff I was talking to you about telecoms Mm. but um, it became increasingly clear to me that I I was kind of looking for another way of interrogating technological development. And for me anyway, I found an incredible way to do that was to work with people with creative arts backgrounds. And so I suppose this may be an unusual statement for an engineer. I I believe there's no such thing as neutral design. So, you know, there's a political element to every design. So whether you're designing a circuit to make it cheaper or or faster or, or, you know, uh, smaller or bigger, you're making a choice that ultimately is kind of political or kind of economic or whatever you want to socio political yeah more broadly speaking when you look at the networks we design uh, the communications networks we're always including or excluding we're always biasing something over the other and for me it's really important to be intentional about that you know rather than accidentally exclude or include that you're intentionally know where you're going and i learned that hugely from working with people in creative arts practice and to me Artists are brilliant at at interrogating technological development, thinking outside the box, questioning the wider uh, socio-economic, cultural, political status in which things play out. And, you know, that's how I use that engagement. So oftentimes think of th- people think when I'm talking about working with creative artists, and I have done this as well, that you're working about art and technology, which I've done, you know, some of my PhD students have been working in that domain. But it's really the bigger piece that's of interest to me, It's that questioning of, uh, you know, the evolution of technology and the world we live in from that political, cultural, social, economic um, perspective, uh, from that inclusion and exclusion, from that equality and diversity perspective that for me uh, and I'm not saying they're the only group that can do that, but for me, absolutely creative arts uh, people I worked with brought to the table. And and the way I look at it and, ha- and did not achieve this at all is that, you know, you kind of have a toolbox that you use when you research. So you open your toolbox and you might use kind of mathematical techniques or you might have various different experimental techniques. Or you might do simulation or emulation. And to me, in that toolbox side by side should be some of the tools that that creative arts practice people bring, you know, a kind of a kind of challenging of the system. And they should be you know, of of equally high value, they're often not, you know, considered that way. Not to me, but so. So to me, that's the kind of element I wanted to bring to the the research. And I have found uh, I've been very privileged to work with some great people to be able to do that and you know, I would go as far to say is without that wider perspective, I wouldn't be in the role I'm in today. That has hugely influenced that as well.
0: Yeah. And because actually, but before I get inside, I was just going to say, I think that sometimes people have the misconception that science is very rigid and not creative. Yeah. And I think a researcher, you know, whatever, you, mm. but it actually is a very creative process. And oh, I think completely, yeah. academia gives you the freedom and the intellectual freedom, I suppose, to pursue that creativity so there definitely is parallels between the creative arts and I suppose.
1: There is and you know, you, you hit the nail on the head it's kind of that it, it, it is that freedom and I, I, I think you know this you were asking me earlier you know when you're kind of forming your identity as well and you're like you, there, there's a moment in time and again, with everything, it's a pro and con. With, like, you know, uh, over the years, I've sometimes had complete moments of panic that I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. And you know, you're 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 constantly kind of oh, and you know, and you know, academia, a lot of um, uh, the great people we work with is about like deep, deep knowledge and kind of a particular area. So you're, you're you're always grappling with those kind of things. But you do still have there is that kind of freedom of you saying, okay, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in the mix and you right the science and. You know, and, and, and many of the topics people study are are, are really, are really creative. And, 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 you know, I think maybe I've put it like this. I think a lot of what we do is about pushing yourself outside your comfort zone, whether that be within a particular discipline or across disciplines. And, and for me, this this was a good way to do it. So
0: thinking about you then putting your your name in the ring for Provost, I mean, I think perhaps, as you mentioned, maybe that kind of straddling of the two between creative arts and Mm. and engineering probably put you in a really good position because you were already managing disciplines that were very different. And then to kind of bring that up to a larger scale of of provost of
1: Trinity. But talk to me about that process. So I suppose there were a couple of major things that kind of got me in, in the right direction. And I have to say, you know. One of those is back a little bit further was the fact that I was able to be the director of Connect. So for, for people who don't know, some people will be quite familiar. You know, there's these large scale Science Foundation Ireland centres. There's, I think, 16 or 17. I could be slightly wrong in that number now. And I was director of one of them and it spread across 10 different institutions. And you have kind of multiple disciplines in it now, multiple kind of science and technology disciplines in the main. But I also had the creative arts in there. So that was an enormous opportunity and basically what it does, it gives you experience uh, about having to work with huge numbers of people across different disciplines. And in this case, across different institutions with all different rules, you know, um, and I think that was a huge stepping stone for me. And you manage very big budgets um, and you have to kind of work on the vision and the big picture. And at the same time, you end up getting down in the weeds about things, you know, and you're kind of constantly juggling those, too. So so that that was an enormous opportunity to be able to kind of and I, I love kind of I actually love big, complex, complex things. I love joining the dots and stuff. So it was a great, great opportunity. And So that was kind of part of the path. And now it's not that I was thinking when I was doing that, oh, oh, oh I want to run for provost. But then I was the dean of research here in Trinity for a few years, and that was unbelievably incredibly brilliant it is such an amazingly fantastic role I mean I know there's all sorts of things that you can get wrong and there's you know we've limited resources to do all the things that we want to do but you just get a breadth and depth of understanding across college. So even though I knew things in my discipline and outside, it, it comes to an, a, a totally different level again. And what you really do see is, you know, even I remember thinking even when people are in going, giving out or driving you crazy about something, <laughs> it's because of passion. It's their passion for research and their want to I want to do better and this kind of complete drive. And that allowed me a huge step back and kind of looking right across and you know, I mean, every corner I turned to, uh, you saw something amazing. And I have a huge belief in the fact that, you know, it's really important. We celebrate good and excellence in all its different forms. And we a comprehensive university with multiple um, disciplines needs to be like that. You can't just say, uh, you know, the way to look good is, you know, by bringing in a 50 million euro grant and standing in a lab doing such and such a thing. Mm-hmm. There's millions of different ways. And and to me, I found kind of great wonder in that. and. You know, then through being Dean of Research as well, you're also on certain committees and um You know, you were in the executive officers group, which is one of the kind of senior management group of the university. Uh, You were on kind of things like counseling. Actually, I was on about 50 different committees and Mm. boards. So you you really got a sense of the university. So as I came when when the provost, the end of uh, the previous promised term was coming and people were beginning to think whether they put their hat in the ring. That for me, then that experience kind of really said to me, yeah, I'm going to give this a go. I love what I'm doing and I'd love to take it to the next level. So it was all through research. Yeah.
0: And, you know, it was uh, such a hugely historic moment. You know, it was the first you were elected as the first Mm -hmm. female provost uh, in Trinity's, I think, 430, 429 years. and I, th- I, think obviously such an important moment for women in STEM, yeah. um, and you know that as I think Minister Simon Harris said that that glass yeah. ceiling had been shattered, but I think it was also quite f- ironic because given Trinity's history, yeah. um, with restrictions on women, and yeah. I think a previous provost had said, you know, over my dead body yeah. will will women enter this college. So talk to us about that moment, what that moment meant for you, um, and I was yeah. the legacy then.
1: So. I suppose a few things right so I think uh, so I had two very uh, brilliant people uh, in the private selection would be uh, Jane All and Marilyn de Hogan and I think even though it wasn't orchestrated that they do you know on purpose that they'd only be women in the race that's how it turned out and in one way that was brilliant because it took away it it, it, it It both emphasised and de-emphasised women. So so basically the question as to whether there'd be a woman next or not was gone. There was going to be. And at the same time, it kind of drew attention to it. And I thought that was really great because then, you know, the entire election was about the issues and the ideas. And, you know, not about, you know, whether this man or this woman was going to be next. So that was that was really good. I mean, at the moment when I won the election, it was just so. Joyous and amazing, but you, you, when you're in a moment of history, you don't kind of sit there and look at it and say, "Oh, I'm in a moment of history," (laughs) you know. And and even now, I kind of think it just seems like you know, it it in one sense is a bit bit abstract. But I did say on the day, you know, we do need to get to a point where it is not extraordinary that anyone does anything (laughs) You just think, oh, this is just the next person doing this. But, you know, it was just wildly exciting and just a huge, huge privilege and scary and daunting and interesting and everything all at once. And um, yeah, it was, uh, of course, it was mid. you know, we were still in COVID lockdown and everything, you know, everyone had to vote remotely and normally people would all be in the one place but it was still really joyous and it was lovely to come out into Front Square and you know just yeah I was kind of floating, I suppose. Mm, Who
0: was with you at the time?
1: So my partner, Simon, uh, was there and his his son, uh, Stefan. But I had an amazing team. So uh, Eleanor Denny was she was the person who kind of ran the election team and was incredible. So she was there. You were only allowed to bring a a certain handful of people with you. So there was and there was another few people who had been kind of helping out in the team there. So it was just uh, and then there was kind of random people who turned up in full square. So it was really (laughs) but it was kind of weird. It was like everyone, you know, everyone was standing like more than two meters apart and. It was just when you wanted to hug yeah, 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 people. Yeah, exactly. It's... That's actually that's exactly what it was. It was this kind of weird thing, as if you were standing in the middle of a ring and <laughs> you just wanted to go over and hug and jump up and down with joy and whatever, and you couldn't do that bit, but it was still amazing. Yeah. Well, I
0: mean, I I, I think I you speak for everyone. Well, congratulations, and I think you're going to do a wonderful job. But I also am interested in what is your vision for yeah. you know the your your term as provost. Yeah. So um, I hope I do a good job. I mean, <laughs> uh,
1: like I, I mean, I laid out the vision in the manifesto. And uh, I mean, you know, I can already tell you that there were things I said in the manifesto that i will definitely be able to come good. And there were things that, you know, you think, oh, my God, I've already learned about why this is possible and why that's not. But um, but ultimately, the main aims of the manifesto remain exactly uh, what I what I want to want to you know, get to. So Trinity is fantastic. Uh, it has lots of great stuff. It's lots of stuff that works brilliantly and lots of stuff that doesn't. And when I look at things, I say to myself, OK, ultimately, this sounds a bit motherhood and apple pie, but I want everybody to be the best they can be. There is so much talent there. And I think on one side, when I look inwards in the university, there's an enormous amount of blockages, whether it's systems, whether it's processes, whether it's decision making and, of course, lack of resources that stop people you know being the best they can be and to me there's a certain part of the next number of years that's about making it the best easiest fairest place to work and 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 that 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 that's kind of the inward piece and i think if you do that you know there's only up and upwards you can go because i think we often get kind of locked into you you're just allowing people to 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 kind of i suppose aspire and reach the kind of ambitions that they have Then there's kind of broader themes. And I I spoke about this a lot. There's, you know, um, I think it's completely clear that everyone in Trinity really, really is serious about biodiversity and climate action. And um, to me, there's a whole range piece of work about that, you know, and about how we as a university tackle that, take bolder steps. And that actually is part of a kind of ethos and culture like we not alone need to do research and find kind of great answers. We need to live the kind of things we recommend ourselves. So there, there's there's the big piece on kind of climate. And then there is then there is kind of the, the pieces that we, we speak about all the time. You know, I mean, the sector as a whole and Trinity as well. Funding issue is a big issue. And I think no provost, no matter what you know who comes in, will not have to focus on that. And you focus on that in multiple different ways. You focus on it in the context politically in the country. Uh, but you need to focus on from a philanthropic point of view and many other points of views as well. So so there's just, just a flavour of things. So it's both about the internal workings, the conditions in which we work and creating the utmost, I suppose, the best conditions we have so people can really, really flourish. It's about the bigger picture ideas, whether it's um, climate action and biodiversity or some of our other mm-hmm. kind of large scale aims. And then it's also about that kind of resource piece that really needs to be kept an eye on.
0: I was thinking, you know, from my perspective as an early career researcher and this podcast is all hmm. about, I suppose, um, g- you know, giving an insight into academia and the, the people behind the lab coats hmm. and, you know, the, the fantastic research that's going on around Ireland, but also uh, maybe to discuss, you know, the kind of challenges in academia yep. um, and the challenges, uh, as you know, maybe at the early career
1: yep. stage. Yep what do you see that you can how we can improve on that I think there's things we can do and I think there's things that we can't do so so first of all I do think as I mentioned to you earlier it's very very challenging today to find a, a job in academia and we have like at the moment we have Roughly speaking, in terms of if we just count academic staff at the moment, we nearly have the same number again as Mm postdoctoral or research fellows are, you know, what the range of phrases we use for 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 that cohort. Um. so when I, you know, back in the day when I started, you know, it was typical that you actually went and did a postdoc for maybe a couple of years and then you moved on. And we have now everybody from a couple of years to people who have here many, many years. Yeah. And I think that in itself generates a lot of difficulty. So there's people who really, really do want permanent jobs in the university, which we can't necessarily Mm -hmm. offer, you know, and this is the problem. But we've built up an expectation and then there's newer people in for a shorter time who, you know, uh, are looking at that and kind of looking at the world around them and seeing, you know, what can I do? So to me, I think we can do a much better job at kind of more general support. Uh, for that cohort uh, in terms of and you probably heard this lots of times but in terms of training in terms of a place to come together and meet in terms of recognizing transferable skills in terms of career development i think everything we do about research integrity and creating the right kind of environment so those people can flourish can be themselves are not kind of um you know, that I suppose that there's a chance for you to find who you are and where you're going next. Um, everything that we can do in terms of, uh, you know, finding next stage opportunities is important. So there's that body of work. And then I do think we have to clean up some things or some things we have to clean up where people have been here for years. And, you know, there's kind of precarious, there's <laughs> issues around contracts and precar- precarity that we do need to look into. It we I don't. There isn't an easy answer to this because mm-hmm. all of the people in that cohort typically or nearly all of them are paid from research funds that yeah. kind of have a beginning, middle and end. And and this is the whole thing, you know, Um, you know, the contract you have is as, oftentimes is as long as when the research funding is available. And it's not like there's another huge pool of funding that, yeah. that exists. So so I definitely we can do a much better job in terms of all of that kind of training and support and making sure people have everything they they need to be able to apply for the grants or do whatever it is or understand the opportunities that are available to them. I think we have more broadly speaking, even beyond that cohort in the university to look at some of the precarious practices that we have and and, and fix them where we can and, and look for creative solutions when we can't, you know, as well. But I, but I do think as well, I think another part of it is is making sure people realize what they're getting into and what choices exist as well for them. Yeah. What kind of things? I mean, in, in yours, like if you had a magic wand, what would you <laughs> like for yourself?
0: Um, I do think it, it, I just think it is very hard to. Um plan I think yeah. it's really hard That's especially and, and I suppose maybe I'm coming from a, as a female in STEM yeah. and you know you're thinking about well you know the the kind of uh, environment or expectation of doing numerous postdocs perhaps yeah. doing some abroad yeah. and the, all the implications that has on I suppose stability and s- yeah. you know family and you know I'm 27 I'm not in any way plan on settling down anytime soon but you know in five or six years if i'm based somewhere in i could be in germany i could be in france i really want to come back to ireland but are the jobs going to be there you know um and maybe then that's in my my view maybe i have to just uh you know move outside academia and go into industry which is totally fine as well but i think that's kind of the the
1: and i think you're you're absolutely right that planning is very very difficult and and you know i don't know whether you've ever seen the graphs that exist that show the number of people who yeah. do PhDs, then the number of people who do postdocs, then the number of people who end up in 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 full time academic positions, and I mean, you know, we we do have to hire more people. But we are not going to hire in the volume that mm. that that um you know that would solve all of those problems. And you probably find the same in other universities. And also as well when we hire, this is the other thing as well, when we hire, it's an open competition. So just because you're in a university already doesn't mean then will automatically go on to that. But on the other hand, we've great talent there as well, and you don't want to lose. Mm. So so there's I mean, I think the quest these are really, really tough questions. And um I think these questions are are becoming uh, I suppose more urgent in research-intensive universities because there is a build-up yeah. of this, and I can see completely how how difficult it is. And I would say to any um uh, any early career researcher that you know, unfortunately, you have to be flexible to go where something arises, mm-hmm. and and that that as you say, that's that's complicated. You know, yeah. you know, you want to be in your own country for you know near family or whatever, or you want to. You want to be able to come back here, even if you go away, and it it, it, it that is hard. I think. Yeah,
0: and I mean, obviously, you know, it, it obviously is important that you pick the right person for the job. And I'm not yeah. saying there should be jobs for everyone, but yeah. I do think you know perhaps more opportunities, you know, for for jobs to come up. Because I'd say, for example, a, an assistant professorship in immunology may mm-hmm. come up once every three or four yeah. years, you know. But if you've
1: missed that boat or you're at, you know, yeah, do you understand what? Oh, I do. Yeah, and and I mean, like. You know, if I had a magic wand, we would be hiring way more people yeah. and there would be way more opportunities on a regular basis. And, you know, we want to do that for multiple reasons. You know, you you may have heard people always talk about our staff student ratio and how um how that needs to hugely improve. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot of things like that. So I think there is a genuine desire within the university that we would be able to hire more. There's huge restrictions in terms of our budget and resources and what we can do um, uh, in that, you know, so so. I would look forward to the I would look to the future with optimism that we will be able to address some of those issues and we will hire more. But it still remains the fact in the greater scheme of things that the number of academic jobs mm. versus the number of all other jobs yeah. is always going to be smaller. I can see even by <laughs> looking at you that I'm depressing you. No, and answering not some of these, but, but it's um, it's it's complex. So, so, yeah, yeah, we can do a much better job. Um, and you know there is individuals across Trinity who are have some great ideas, and you know we are going to be looking in more detail at precarious work right across the university, um, going looking at more detail and kind of better supports, but there's some obstacles, and I just say this out of a kind of having to face the reality of there's some obstacles we won't be able to overcome, but we will do our best, you know. So and it is it is challenging.
0: Well, no, thank you so much for you know kind of discussing that with mm. me and uh, Linda. My last question for you yeah. um is. You know, and I've asked everyone now who's come on the podcast, if, if you weren't in the job or the role you're in today, and I mean as well, if you were, hadn't been a researcher, yeah. where do you think your life might have ended up? What other career do you think you might have had?
1: Um, Well, I suppose because I was in industry for a bit, I'd probably, I'd probably have kind of been in industry for, yeah, I, I suppose industry, but it would probably, I think I'd probably been attracted to Maybe the kind of industry that you were able to do a greater mix, just like I did here in Trinity, do a greater mix of, you know, um arts and technology. And I mean, there's limited options for that. But maybe I had to try to actually make it happen in whatever industry I was in. So that probably would have been the career, I think. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I mean, one of the great things it's, you know, people talk about a career and okay, I have been in the same place for a long time, but there's no two years in a row I've done the same thing. And uh, I think no matter what I'd be doing, I'd be doing kind of different things. Uh, as time went on.
0: I know you're interested in the arts, but are you artistic yourself?
1: Uh, you know I kind of like a bit of crafts and a bit of, <laughs> you know, I, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've always like liked art when I was, you know, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm I'm too used to hanging out with people who are so artistic that I wouldn't describe myself as that. But you know, I'd be doing kind of hobbies from time to time. Yeah. That way, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, honestly, this we could talk for a long a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um it's been so lovely to talk to you today and thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you. And I'm just so impressed at first of all how how natural and engaging you are and how much work you put into l- looking at things and reading at things and how you engage with topics to do with wireless communication. So you're fantastic. Thank you very much. <laughs> well I learned a lot about wireless communications <laughs> in the last week. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Brilliant. <Very good. laughs> thank you. So that's it for another week of unravelling science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.